Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers Southland Tales, the Richard Kelly film from uh, 2006. And this is a conversation with Andrew Cook, similar to the episode on Eyes Wide Shut, which of course I'll link in the show notes, uh, where I had him on as a previous guest. And uh, in this case, we talked for a very long time. I think this is the longest episode of the Lost in the Movies podcast. And uh, it's something I recorded, as almost all of these episodes were, for patrons, uh, part of some coverage of a 2000s uh, movies. And I'll link to that uh, Patreon episode below as well, because I think it's an interesting context for this, because I talk a lot more. I have all these capsules and archive readings on 2000s films, and this is a film which is fascinating in that regard because it takes place in a future which is still within the decade that uh, it was shot and, uh, you know, was informed by that decade as well. So a lot to discuss there. I also have some bonus sections in here, uh, part of an, uh, an excerpt from a conversation I did with the director Vera Drew, who made The People's Joker. And uh, in our conversation, this film came up and uh, she ended up being a huge fan of that, so I'm going to include that here as well, plus some feedback from a listener who invited me on on uh, the podcast. There's, uh, what's it called? <laughs> I'm having a brain freeze for a second. Have a Nice Apocalypse, which is all about Southland Tales, so I should be appearing on that hopefully sometime soon within the next few months, and uh, here's the feedback they wrote in on that. One more thing on the previous episode of this podcast, I should note. Uh, I covered the film Under the Skin. You can check that out. There's a Patreon kind of part two of that about the book that that movie is based on. So you can check that out as well. And uh, if you have uh, any thoughts on any of this, it's essentially too late because this is the last, uh, probably the last official episode of this public Lost in the Movies podcast. Um you know, you're always welcome to send me your thoughts. I'm happy to read them. But in terms of like sharing feedback, uh, this is the final episode of the season. And I'm pausing after this. I'll have some uh, bonus episodes coming up or not bonus episodes, but like teasers basically for Patreon content because there's a ton of Patreon content which still hasn't been released publicly. And I'll share that on this feed. But this is kind of concluding the project of the public lost and uh, the Lost in the Movies podcast. So uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, you can always uh, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to keep uh, bringing new people in because, you know, although it's an archive at this point, not an ongoing podcast, or at least after this point, uh, I still would hope that, you know, new people would discover it. And you can also join and uh, support this uh, work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies, which I do intend to continue uh, past the point that a lot of my public work has stopped. So at any rate, let's get on uh, with this episode before I get to the Southland Tales conversation. Just want to share some of my recent work. Uh, for example, on Twin Peaks Cinema, the, another podcast feed, my previous episode was number 25, covering The Straight Story, part of my Long Road Home series, uh, dealing with the collaboration between David Lynch and Mary Sweeney. And there's going to be one more episode on that podcast as well before it pauses, probably permanently. And that one is on the film Baraboo, which was Mary Sweeney's directorial debut. And uh, going forward is on the uh, Lost in Twin Peaks 
podcast, another public feed that I have going. I am going to put up an episode on the season three finale, uh, should be by the end of June. And then I'm at least going to put out the episodes, the big episodes of season two. So like, you know, season two premiere, the other one Lynch directed right after that, the killer's reveal, the finale, um, the episode where the mystery is resolved and beyond that, I'm probably going to just dump a bunch of episodes at once if I'm even able to get to them. I've fallen behind on that work, unfortunately. But I'll hopefully have illustrated companions for all the episodes, no matter what you know order or form I release them in. I also made a guest appearance on the podcast, uh, Twin Peaks Grammar slash Artists Love Twin Peaks. Uh, depending you know which platform you're on, YouTube has Twin Peaks Grammar. And uh, Anthony, the host of the show, has a, a podcast on various audio platforms called Artist Loves Twin Peaks. So we had a great conversation, I think over three hours, where he asked me lots of questions about my own working methods and things like that. So I hopefully you enjoy listening to that. Uh, going forward, I do have, uh, again, the Southland Tales uh, podcasts coming up, probably. Not sure if I'll be on any other podcasts in the next few months, but uh, stay tuned. And uh, also, I'm going to have two to three more Twin Peaks conversations. Um, actually, at this point, I can say three more because I've scheduled all of them uh, coming up. So that's good because I fell behind a few months ago. But uh, those conversations will continue with the front part on YouTube and the back part on a Patreon for $5 a month patrons. And there will probably be, well, I hope there'll be some bonuses at a certain point, too. And same thing there. I'll, I'll reserve the back parts of those for uh, patrons on the top tier. And also on Patreon for a dollar a month, I have a uh, advance, uh, exclusive advance for the Twin Peaks character series on number 31. This was an entry on a group of characters. I won't say who. I won't spoil it. You can become a patron and check it out. And, uh, you know, this note's also number 32 was already published, so there's a link to that on there. But uh, basically, this is as far as I've gotten at this point on the advanced entries. And uh, on my site, on the Twin Peaks character series, it's been paused for a while. So I got up to number 46, and numbers 45 through 31 are all exclusive to patrons at this point. I'm always going to stay a month ahead at least for uh the patrons dollar a month and five dollars a month uh, as far as the twin peaks character series goes and uh, going forward on patreon i have the big finale episode 100 coming up uh, much of it is already recorded so uh hopefully that will be coming soon and there will be more character advances eventually uh, among other rewards on a uh, and i also have a, an update on that site um offering you know the the why there's been certain delays what's upcoming and so forth now on another site uh wonders in the dark which was a site that was a big deal to me going back to the early days of of my own site i've written a lot for them i shared one of my older reviews from lost in the movies uh, published it on their site as well as part of their alan fish uh, film fest online film festival and this was the film to sleep with anger by charles burnett so you can my read my review there that got some great comments good feedback on that uh, you can check that out and on my own site lost in the movies.com uh it, you know i have a spring update about uh, what's going on heading into summer plus some uh, cross post 
for the uh, May Patreon, which again was just that one character advance. So really not too much going on on the site, but hopefully a lot is brewing. Uh, going forward, the big thing I hope to be working on is uh, Journey Through Twin Peaks, finally doing the part six of that video series, which has been my most popular work, work that I've really enjoyed. And I hope to be diving into that really within the next few days behind the scenes and then releasing it sort of methodically once I've got a good amount underway. So all of that aside, let's jump ahead into Southland Tales, a long conversation with Andrew Cook. I'm going to tell you the story of the journey down the road not taken. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. These are the sordid tales of how it all came crashing down. This is an epic Los Angeles crime saga. And you're researching your role? Yes. It takes place in the near future. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. You're gonna have to wear a bulletproof vest. Let's talk about your phone. What's it really about? Don't look so scared, Mr. Santeros. The future is just like you imagine. So for the second time on this uh, podcast, I have the guest, Andrew Cook, who came on at this point. Uh, the episode was released publicly last year, but we recorded it um, uh, uh, four years ago, and that was Eyes Wide Shut. I had a great conversation about that. So now um i'm trying to think if there's like commonality really between the films maybe i'm trying to think of a segue into it uh but we're here to discuss this time a film that came out i guess what six or seven years after that which is kind of um surprising in a way when you think about it like they seem further apart in history but southland tales by richard kelly and you are a big richard kelly fan you're a big fan of this film I was sort of more mixed on it, although I th I think I definitely got more out of it this time, and and uh, I kind of liked it more. I think the second time as well. It's a uh, it's a film that I've always felt, even before I saw it, is like I'm glad this film exists, whether or not I'm gonna like it. And then I saw it, and I was kind of like didn't didn't quite work for me, but I was like I'm I'm still glad this film exists. Like it <laughs> needs to be out there in the world. So. As we said before we started recording, I guess I'm going to try to summarize and you can sort of intercede um, because there are a lot of threads to this movie and uh, I may only grasp some of them. Although I did um, look at the graphic novels uh, that are on the Blu-ray that Richard Kelly, uh, I guess, wrote. I don't know if he illustrated he did, them as well. or He wrote and the art's from an artist named Brett Weldel. Okay. And those are like the first... It's basically think of it like Star Wars, where they released episodes four through six. He did the same thing with this movie, but he uh, where he's telling a story and he starts basically at the halfway point. But he had a prequel graphic novel series that, uh, you know, tell the story of parts one through three. 
Uh, and I, as one would with Star Wars, watched or read or whatever it backwards. So I, I watched the film and then I went back and I read the graphic novels. And I, I have to say, I think, I don't know if it's partly due to the medium, because I think um, comic books might be a little better with exposition than films are, uh, or if it was just the fact that these were, you know, the first three parts. But a lot seemed clearer to me from reading those than from the film. Uh, so things, questions I had, like what the heck's going on here, it became much clearer in that in that graphic novel form. So I guess before I even describe the film, I might as well uh, discuss the the graphic novels a bit, or or maybe I'll just mix it all together and um, try to distinguish what's in what. But basically, in the film, The Rock, Sean William Scott, and uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar are three characters kind of caught up in this post and pre-apocalyptic world. Uh, it's like an alternate version of the late 2000s. The film was made in 2005, I think released in 2006, and it takes place in 2008. So at this point in the film's version of history, uh, there's been more terrorist attacks. In fact, a nuclear bomb goes off in the Southwest, a little Twin Peaks connection here, I guess. And uh, then the government really cracks down more. There's like a doubling, tripling down on the Patriot Act, mass surveillance nationwide. And these cells emerge in resistance, calling themselves the neo-Marxists. And there's a conflict between these, you know, the, the government and uh, those groups. So the film's plot, God, this is harder than I, this is harder than I thought. I should have written something down beforehand to try and summarize it. Basically, The Rock is a movie star. The Rock is playing a movie star who is like married to a Republican politician's daughter. Uh, he's the man running for is it president or vice president. I'm not sure, but he is, uh, you know, so he's wrapped up in that world. He is somehow kidnapped as is like uh, memory erased. So he has amnesia, kidnapped and put on a mission by the neo-Marxists who want him to film Sean William Scott as a racist cop uh, getting in an altercation because I think I'm actually not sure why, <laughs> like, I'm not sure what that, what role that's supposed to play. But then there's like a plot within the plot where one of the neo-Marxists is actually conspiring with a, another cop played by John Lovitz who comes in and actually does kill the people they were going to, I'm going to stop right there. This is just getting too convoluted. It's, you know, I thought it was confusing to watch, but it's even more confusing to describe. And so anyways, I guess to give it the quickest uh, finish off summary, they all end up in a Zeppelin. The world ends, I think, because Sean William Scott meets his twin who is not actually his twin, but is an earlier version of himself because they kind of folded over time. Oh, there's also like their their uh, Wallace Shawn is some uh, Elon Musk type character, but he's like a German descendant of Karl Marx, who is uh, developing alternate fuels that can uh, destroy this space time continuum or something. And uh, oh, and Justin Timberlake is a uh, veteran of the Iraq War who was shot in the face by accident by Sean William Scott, friendly fire. And he is, uh, all of this takes place in like Santa Monica, Venice Beach, you know, coastal LA. And uh, he, he has a sequence where he injects a drug, they call it bleeding. He injects a drug that is related to the alternate fuel Wallace Shawn is developing, injects it into his neck. And uh, then 
as like a three or four minute sequence where he sings the killer song whose title I can't remember, but the famous line is I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. And he just lip syncs that for several minutes. And that I feel like maybe the most famous sequence of the movie or the one that is discussed the most. Uh, There's all kinds of other stuff I haven't even touched on here. Um, So I'm going to stop there and at this point, just rely on my notes of what I thought was interesting in the movie versus what what exactly is going on so <laughs> tell me and that now that we're like 10 minutes in and i've i've maybe got out some half digested version of the plot <laughs> tell me tell me what i missed or what you what, what uh you know i got right or what you think of the uh, narrative of this movie so yeah R- richard kelly he's so famous for this complex plotting um to the point that and well i guess a lot of people will say perhaps that that's um flaw and i guess i can understand especially in the case of southland tales if you don't like it but i feel like there's always an an ironic twist to the way he plots his films and he's a lot more ironic as a filmmaker and a storyteller than he gets credit for yeah this is definitely Um, a comedic film i forgot to mention sarah michelle geller's character is a porn star entrepreneur um political uh, analyst who has a reality show where her and her friends uh, discuss like the political issues of the day um, sitting on the beach and also mixing it with some uh, porn shop talk as well. And she has the hit single teen horniness is not a crime. I think if I got that right. An open heart and an open mind. Um, yeah. So I think that the, the, com- the complexity of the film, I think is part of the joke. I think it's supposed to be funny, <clears throat> right? Like so many of the plots intersect in this one scene that is, you know, conceived as completely overcooked with lightning flashing outside and storm clouds punctuating every reveal about who's cheating on who with whom and whose baby is it. Very soap opera influenced. And I think that scene is key to understanding um, the essential comedic absurdity of the plotting of the film. Um, But to me, my interpretation is essentially that, yeah, there were these um attacks nuclear attacks on texas the graphic novel i think floats the idea that they were potentially false flag attacks more so than the film yeah i feel like it's almost implicit in the movie because the government is very the government the national security state are very much the enemy mm -hmm. and you know that causes you know like you say the patriot act to ramp up and the democratic party is is so feckless has mounted such a weak resistance that it has led to these neo-marxist cells to join up and there are plots within plots and plans within plans but the most important is one involving two neo-marxists which is the former mayor of i think los angeles tab taverner and his son roland um, Roland was a... And that's the Sean William Scott uh, yes, character. Sean William Scott. He was a neo-Marxist actor. He was part of the troupe with with Amy Poehler and all that, and he gets drafted. And, and then essentially comes back scarred trying to make a living as a police officer. And I think that his dad pulls some strings to get him, I don't know, across state lines and to this meeting on Lake Mead to drive the rock through that rift. And essentially his plan, Tab Taverner, um, with a few other people in the film, is to essentially give his 
son up to, with Roland's consent to become a kind of a new Marxist messiah to see the world of capitalism um, ended permanently. And this coincides with another plot from some less existentially inclined Marxists who want to use Boxer as a decoy, or, well, not as a decoy, but as a... Um, Boxer being the rock character. Yeah, the, the yeah. rock um, as a frame up to, to create a, essentially a hit piece on um, the Elliott Frost Republican campaign and swing California back toward Hillary Clinton because... Um, the whole kind of film hinges on the idea that Clinton would be incompetent enough as a campaigner to lose layup states like California. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, reading. I almost felt like Clinton, it was almost like a throwaway gag. Like you see the name on the screen, uh, mm -hmm. Elliot Frost versus Clinton Lieberman, which is great. And, uh, and then we never really hear her mentioned again in the film. Like it's like, a, it's, it's a sort of a like, it's almost like a, a sort of a wink and a nod to how inevitable Hillary felt both, I guess, leading up to 2008 and 2016, both of which uh, mm -hmm. she lost, of course, <laughs> one of which she lost the primary of, but you know, anyways. <laughs> and so there, there are these two Marxist plots, the one who want to use boxer um, to, to try to sink the campaign he's involved with the Republican campaign. And the other one who use him as a sort of, decoy um messiah to distract Wallace Shawn's character who is you know playing the left and right against each other to enrich himself and his company and once and he believes that Boxer is the, the person the neo-Marxists are floating as the messianic figure and so Boxer's there to kind of trick him into um, investing all of his attention onto The Rock instead of on Sean William Scott so that they can um, get those two to meet and usher in this new, um, you know, this new age, right? With Because, you know, um, Wallace Shawn's character, Baron, he, he's very much a capitalist. And you're right. I mean, he, he looks kind of like Elon Musk before he fixed his hair and his mom <laughs> looks exactly like Elon Musk's mom. Oh, that's funny. And, I didn't know that. And and he sees himself as a capitalist who understands the left, as as Musk sometimes seems to fancy himself as doing. Um, but he's in fact completely, I mean, fooling him is almost the undercurrent of the plot of the film. Um, because because his mother, being a descendant of Marx, I think has become frightened by what he's become and by what the world has become, and is in fact in on the plot to um create this Marxist messiah and to misdirect the security state and um, Baron from from getting their hands on him, so to speak. That, I think, is a better tracing of the core thematic threads in the movie than, <laughs> than I could muster. But uh, one thing that really compelled me about Southland Tales, both as just a concept and I think more and more as I've seen it now a couple times, you know, in what's in the film itself, is the idea of like Richard Kelly doing for the present at least the present of that time, what he had already done for the recent past in Donnie Darko, which is sort of mythologize it. So include mm -hmm. these familiar details and then mix them in with this larger than life mythos. And I can really can't think of almost any other directors who really do that. I mean, I remember being struck very much in the 2000s. It was like, 
constant theme for me when I would think about movies of the time is like, you know, how they're not really dealing with the zeitgeist. And I think in retrospect, you look back and it's like, well, there were all these attempts to do that. There were films like, um, uh, there were a lot of films about like the war on terror and stuff like that. Like, like being, rendition. Yeah. Rendition. And um, what Why was the one it? that was the other one? I was thinking of that exact one. Yeah. Um, there were all these films. There was the one with like Tommy Lee. Anyways, they, they, you know, th this was a common attempt, but it never quite felt like they landed. They always felt a little forced. And uh, if you look at the 60s, there were a lot more films that often didn't reference, like they weren't like, we're going to be topical so much, but they mm -hmm. would just have that, they would have their finger on the pulse, whether it be something like in Midnight Cowboy, you know, they're moving through a bunch of anti-war protesters and Ratso Rizzo is mumbling to himself or, you know, little things in The Graduate that kind of link up to that. It just felt like, or even something like Bonnie and Clyde, where it's a period piece, but it feels totally in the 60s vibe. And it just, I remember feeling living through this this era, the Bush era, that it was like there was this weird sort of cultural impotence when it came to that. So it was interesting to see Richard Kelly try to tackle that. I think with um, some success and some, I, I think, not not quite success uh, to to really uh, wrap his hands around that and, and give it his sort of treatment. Now, with Donnie Darko, I don't know if it's because it's a simpler story or because it's not current events or what. That film works a little better for me, both in the sense that it just kind of, the, the storytelling works a little more. And also, though, I think the mood of the film like Southland Tales is fascinating to me, but it does like, and I can see that it's sort of going for something similar, but what really works for me about Donnie Darko, at least, you know, I haven't seen it in years, but the last time I watched it, I'll probably um, revisit it and do a little capsule for this podcast when it's all wrapped up and presented. But uh, there's like a real sense of uh, kind of like a melancholy, uh, almost like a wistfulness to it that I feel like captures what it can be like to live sort of present in a certain moment. Um, and, and uh, like, it, it feels like it knows it from the inside out, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. I don't quite get that with Southland tales. It's, it's sort of more chasing something and not quite catching it, which can be fun too, but uh, is sort of a different phenomenon in a way. Now, for you, you've said that, you know, you you are definitely a fan of this movie. Like, what is it about it? Is it, would you say that its appeal to you is more cerebral or visceral or some combination of the two? Um, do you get, like, a, a, is there a, a mood that you kind of fall under the spell of, similar to how many people yes. feel about Donnie Darko? What I really love about all of Kelly's films is how, I mean, can you, you can dig into it you know, and be like, well, you know, what are the intersecting plots? But you almost don't need to because the film is as much about mood and theme. And to me, it works, yeah, primarily in a very visceral and emotional sense where even revisiting it now for this podcast, I mean, I've seen it a million times, but I still get swept up in the, just that atmosphere of who knows what you'll see next. You know, there's a complete kind of, um, <clears throat> artistic um heterogeneous grab bag feeling to the film that just i mean i just find it so entertaining basically 
that you really never know. I mean, it could cut to, yeah, a long hallucinatory sequence um, of a, you know, soldier expressing his um, animus over having served and having been wounded or um, this bizarre car commercial. You you almost never know what you'll see. It captures um, this chaos that I would say it is true. It feels almost more... I mean, does it was the Bush were the Bush years absurd? Yes, but it almost feels more modern than that. Just yes. just the randomness yes. of it and the extreme arch absurdity of it and just how silly everything is feels less um, evocative of 20, 2008 than it does 2018. Yeah, but that's even a great so, point. Great point. Yeah, I just love that that sense that you never know what you'll see and whatever you do see is just so tightly controlled and precise in terms of um, the production design and the camera movement and the cutting. Like, I mean, I really feel that stylistically this film does represent um, cinematic growth on Kelly's part, just in the tightness of, of his camera movements and his blocking and how it, how it builds tension that, um, you know, sits so bizarre with the more comedic things in a way that I find really interesting. I think also for me, the film is uh, it actually gains some value the further it goes from the time it's depicting, which was both its own time and a future that it was anticipating. Mm -hmm. Um, I think partly, I mean, yes, there is that interesting element of it feels more in the spirit of the Trump era than the Bush Mm -hmm. era in some ways. It it has this thing that I think some of the best uh, work of the, uh, 2000s, the best art of the 2000s decade has, like Inland Empire, I think has this as well, where it kind of has its finger on the pulse of like the subterranean, almost like subconscious zeitgeist, if that makes sense. Because on the surface, mm-hmm. the thing that characterized the Bush era was not this like crazy chaotic, what's going to happen next. It was this like sort of simmering uh fractured sense of like stasis and deadness there was like Mm -hmm. a numbness to the era as i recall it and obviously this stuff is subjective your own life conditions play into it but to me that decade which i always i can't call it the aughts it's like that says that has that's like too old-fashioned of a feel to me it's the zeros you know Mm -hmm. and and that i think kind of sums up the the spirit of the decade nicely as well there's just this sort of like there's so there was so much going on but the average american life was weirdly untouched by it Mm -hmm. you know and that i think there was like a sense of disconnect and dislocation that characterized it where it was an eventful era in which somehow most people were kept uh, or in America, I think most Americans were sort of kept at an arm's length from it. And I think the 2008 crash started to change that. I think Mm -hmm. the directions politics took and all of that, but there was this time from like nine 11 to, you know, 2006 or seven where just it's, it seemed like everything was uh, broken, but beneath the surface, if that makes sense. And what's interesting about this film is that like Inland Empire, like some of these other films of the time, it's like it it almost captures what 
this is, this is so abstract and hard to describe, but it almost captures what we couldn't be conscious of at the time, but that was there mm-hmm. beneath the surface. And maybe you could argue manifested later um, in the Trump era and maybe eras to come as well. But Right. Like when you think about those times, you think back, you realize they were very absurd. Um, I mean, this cowboy president who, who, you know, I mean, was not particularly more um, elegant rhetorically than Trump, you know, would say silly things. And he had this vice president who was in charge of this company that then became, you know, embedded in the invasion of Iraq. And you had the magic Homeland Security color-coded threat levels that would rise according to um, if the stories that day were bad for Republicans in the news. And the gay porn star who was embedded in press conferences to name or to ask softball questions to George Bush. It was absurd. But the absurdity, it's like, yeah, we were all disconnected from it and didn't seem to notice it or think of it at all. Because it was like 9-11 gave them a complete pass. And so when I think back, I realize now that that time was way more absurd than it almost seems to any of us at the time. And and Southland Tales, yeah, might have tapped into that vein of recognizing what nobody wanted to recognize in, in some of those other films, like In the Valley of Ella and so on. Well, also, there, I think part of the phenomenon is that Social media was very new. Like Facebook only came into vogue in like the later part of the period and mm-hmm. was really more for like people connecting personally to like, you know, people they already knew or whatever. Uh, so social media was not really a thing. And I think at least in the way it is now and has been for the past, you know, five or six years. So I think one of the big differences is there wasn't really a participatory aspect in the era. Like we could all feel what was happening, but it was hard to know what to do about it. And uh, it really didn't feel like there was even an outlet for expression. Like I don't think during the Trump era, there was a lot of effective grassroots democracy going on, but there was at least like a vibrant, if you want to put a positive spin on it, um, Mm -hmm. noisy like uh, outlet for people. And, uh, you know, I think of the Bush era, I always think of like uh, being on a college campus and seeing an anti-war protest and they were like standing outside of this glass library building and they were like, we're going to stage a die-in inside the library to protest the war. And they like marched in and they lay down on the steps and you could see them behind the glass facade if you looked, but most people were just walking to and from classes and work and whatever and I just saw all these people passing in front of the library, not even noticing all these protesters inside doing their demonstration. And I thought, yeah, this is <laughs> this is like almost <laughs> too on the nose as a microcosm of this of this era and just the general sense of impotence that was there, like the political impotence of it. Um, so, yeah, so I, it's interesting to go back and look at a film which is so uh chaotic and exploding with all this energy and these ideas and and um see it as representing a time that really was not those things in many ways mm-hmm. uh, but also now looking back there's like a weird i don't know if you want to call it nostalgic aspect but this was a different era and you can now look back and see things that have changed in the past 15 years even things as simple as like fashion or hairstyles or whatever you know mm-hmm. and so there's this weird kind of poignant sense um, I think particularly for people of our 
age generation, like we're, you know, I think what six years apart or something, but basically we're both, you know, kind of came of age, I would say probably during roughly during this whole era. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that plays a part in it, but there's a sense in which that, that era is so unresolved. Like there was again, partly because of that political impotence and that weird cultural kind of void that existed at that time. I wrote an essay about it at the time, like right after Obama was elected, there was some mm-hmm. Newsweek article that was like the best art of the Bush era. And I found it really glib and annoying. And mm-hmm. it sort of, I used it as a springboard to vent about my frustrations about like the culture of the time. And I'll link that below. Cause I think that probably expresses some of what I'm trying to say here. But, you know, so that aspect of it still feels very live and unresolved, but I can also look and be like, oh, that was like, that was the past now. Like this was mm-hmm. a different era. This was, you know, it had its own kind of aesthetic and everything. And that's sort of gone. And there's like a, there's a fascination to that. There, I think the 2000s for me are a decade that's much more interesting to revisit than it was, or more, I don't know if interesting is the right word, certainly more um, productive or fruitful to revisit than to live through <laughs> at the mm-hmm. time, you know, that's almost like they require, it's like a wine or something that needs aging. Um, I can go back now and just be like, yeah, there's, there's like a certain vibe or mood to this that at the time I just felt more like frustrated and like everything was repressed and not, um, you know, I think for all of its, uh, downsides the teens the 2010s were a much more interesting decade to live through like at the time like there just was more of a sense of like openness and possibility as well as uh you know fears and uh and uh frustrations mm-hmm. whereas uh, 2000s was just more of like a straitjacket in some way that's Something, kind of interesting yeah. just because one thing that i always think is interesting about donnie darko kelly's first movie is how it has this very kind of ironic feel as well. Like here's this ironic fantasy where the smart but kind of know-it-all teenager, he's the one who sees through the, you know, the the plotting about these future beings that break the fourth dimension. I mean, of course, it's opaque to the audience, but the irony is that the teenage character understands it. And they live in this great fantasy world where like, you know, Gen X defeats the, culturally conservative boomers or whatever and it's a nice little fantasy in a world that that ceases to be by the end of the film and and so even though darko is very emblematic of the 80s it almost feels in a sense like 2010 to 2015 in a way um with with southland tales at once being a product of the 2000s um, and taking place in 2008, but it feels like a post-Trump era. Um, like both the films almost kind of cast to the future in a way, like that kind of misplaced idealism of the Obama era that, you know, like you said, that we had some possibilities, you know, at that time, which turned out not to particularly be really all that true. Um, and then and then Southland Tales is so evocative of of the last few years. Um which just interesting how we were talking about how like Southland Tales is a film that's at once kind of of its time and kind of, you know, ahead of it in a way. Yeah. It's almost like it, uh, if, if in some ways it's sense of expansiveness and uh, possibility, good and bad is, is more of the Trump era. It's 
like design elements, I guess it's aesthetics are very much of the time. Like there's this, this sort of like polished ugliness to it. That mm-hmm. is how I would describe many aspects of the two thousands. Um, I mean that <laughs> the ad of the two cars fucking is one of the funniest. It's certainly <laughs> like the thing that made me laugh the hardest in the movie. And it's so perfectly evocative of just like the spirit of the Bush era. And the fact that it's like this garish, like computer animation or not even garish, really just like weirdly like drab, but mm-hmm. like, uh, but, <laughs> but sort of ugly. And it just, it's, it's <laughs> everything about it is, is, uh, is a, is a perfect little uh, microcosm of that era. And just something interesting to me about Southland Tales is how there's this whole thread that kind of undergirds the um, film about how the art that might end up being most predictive will, will be in its time the most absurd. I mean, Southland Tales is a film that was not particularly well received in its time, but now it's seen as something that's perhaps been somewhat predictive. And it's a film about a screenplay that is um, kind of terrible that these characters want to produce, but also is predictive. Like this idea that the art you might not expect or you might not even like can end up being some of the most perceptive is something that is true within the within the fiction of Southland Tales and then almost became the story of Southland Tales. Yeah, that's right. That's that's another plot element I didn't even get to is the fact that they're all writing this screenplay that is literally just everything that's going to happen in the movie that they've scripted out ahead of time. So you'll see, like you were saying, how it's kind of it casts forward, but also a little bit not like Richard Kelly calls the idea of a dirtbag left, Mm. but he's got them all as as like poets instead of podcasters. Right. Yeah. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up. because I feel like the political aspect, if in some ways the political predictiveness or like uh, his attempt to sort of create a left in the movie feels like almost the most dated thing about it in a way. Like for one thing, there's a phrase they use at one point, which I feel like is the most dated term in the film, which is dissenting liberal extremist cells. Mm-hmm. Like that, that does not, uh, I think, that particular combination of words would um, not be used, or at least, you know, maybe the New York Times would would write it in a ham-handed way, but it would certainly right. not be self-applied by anybody um, in today's, or I suppose at this point, because of the sort of post-Bernie decline, we could even say yesterday's left, but the left that right. emerged after, about 10 years after this movie. Um, it it seems much more sort of held in the lingering kind of after the the like decades long afterwash of the '60s, where it's like, well, if there's a left, it's like a counterculture left that is right. very like sort of abrasively um, uh, just offbeat and and uh, kind of. Uh, punkish or hippie-ish or whatever. I mean, they're not they're more punkish than hippie-ish, I would say in this case, but but like very much. And there was that aspect to the the sort of Bernie era left, but it was, um, I mean, uh, really the notable thing about what happened was that there was a left that was more focused on economics than culture than it had been in like decades, mm-hmm. that there was at least a sort of like attempt to at populism, which I think this is not a populist left really um 
much at all in this in this film you know certainly there's Mm -hmm. not not in an economic way to a certain extent i I mean in some ways the neo-marxists almost better anticipate the sort of weird fringe like um shadow zone between like uh uh, rebellious left and right that emerged during this time of like, I'm thinking of like people like Cassandra Fairbanks or something where they're like mm-hmm. protesters who went for Trump, like that type of thing where it's like this weird subcult, like aggressively subcultural aspect. You know what it is? It's Gen X. I think mm. it's a very, this is a very Gen X left versus the sort of millennial left that emerged. I was really struck watching this, especially this time, how, the uh this era the sort of like uh you know i i do a whole generations era breakdown that i may someday turn into videos if i can ever <laughs> if i can ever crawl out of my uh deadline uh, schedule where i never have time to work on future projects but i i do have this idea of sort of like covering different eras and looking at the different generations within it so mm-hmm. i would you know this era kind of falls in what i call the millennial crisis era 98 to 2005 and mm-hmm. I'm struck by how this was a time of, you know, of, among like younger, yes, this was like the rise of the millennials. This is when, you know, millennials started like going, getting, graduating high school, college, and kind of becoming the younger generation, the same way that like the Zoomers or Gen Z or whatever you want to call them are now. But mm-hmm. Gen X was still kind of the predominant youth, like the predominant people in their 20s and, uh, and maybe early thirties and stuff like that. And this film is kind of stocked with a lot of, I would say like late, it's made by like a late Gen X or it's stocked with late Gen X actors, people born in the seventies mm-hmm. and still pretty young at the time you have. Uh, and, and it's actually, it's interesting too. So it's a Bush era film, but it's really like, it's, it's kind of uh, cultural touchstones are all uh, people from like the, just before 9-11, like the turn of the millennium, like late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, you've got Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you have American Pie, you have mm-hmm. Pro Wrestling, mm-hmm. you have NSYNC, you have Mandy Moore, you have Music by Moby. Um, Kevin Smith. Yeah, so who was Kevin Smith in this? I was trying to figure that out because I saw his name in the credits and I'm like, I don't remember him in this. He plays the um, the general who is secretly a neo-marxist but happens to look pretty much exactly like Karl marx i don't even know if i remember that character (laughs) he's the one who like he's in the blimp at the end and he tells you the rock you know lower that fucking sidearm that's funny okay yeah i I, i'll have to like revisit again and and see if keep that in mind but yeah and, and even in a way kevin smith is almost a little earlier than that, you know, because Clerks mm-hmm. was like 94. Like so many of these people are like that peak, like like 99, 2000, 2001 was like their breakthrough. Like not that they weren't necessarily still popular at the time this film came out, but that was like their moment where the the they sort of crystallized the zeitgeist. So I think of this as like a very, uh, you know, Gen X film in a way but it's like it's not a gen x film like reality bites or like the mm-hmm. 90s films it's like gen x in the 2000s before the millennials kind of fully superseded them as the predominant young generation yeah it's like gen xers with a gen x filmmaker kind of casting this warped vision um, of the future almost and i just like how that warped sensibility i mean like i said before it's baked right into it through the power right that 
um, everything will be warped because, you know, we see what happens in the film and it's different than the prophecy of the screenplay, which involves a baby whose farts are of nuclear um, intensity and can end the world with a giant fart if he eats McDonald's. Yeah, Uh, that's something I actually wanted to bring up is why in the script, because I did read the graphic novel on the Blu-ray and it has long excerpts from the script that the characters are writing. It's like everything is the same in the script. Not everything, but, you know, roughly follows the same contours, except that they trade basically who the uh, Sean William Scott twin characters are for this like apocalyptic baby. Right. Um, Like her her vision is is similar, but not similar to what happens, but not quite, right? Just as a lot of the best prophetic science fiction, um, including as it turned out in some ways, Southland Tales is similar, but not quite. It's just interesting that this thread in the film, you know, kind of became true, you know, um, in real life. Why do you think he reserved the baby idea for the comic book and not the film? Or why did he think of it as a thing that would be a good decoy you know, if you dive that far in, I think most people who see the movie won't even pick up. I, believe, I, I didn't really get it till I read the he, graphic. I believe he wanted to cast the screenplay as a kind of modern book of Revelation with the expectation that what we see in the book of Revelation won't be what literally happens. It's John of Patmos's drug addled vision of it, just as the screenplay is Kristen Al's drug addled vision of of what will come as she was injected with the fluid karma in uh, in a a set of experiments to see if they could unlock latent psychic ability in people through bleeding so and that's what unlocks some of this shared consciousness toward the end between the bleeders like even people who don't inject that much like boxer or her have some some sense that it had to be this way in, in in a way and so I think that the idea was to create a new absurd book of revelation for, from which the film could draw. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in some ways I would almost, I wouldn't say rather necessarily, but I would like to see the film with the apoc- with the, the, you know, the apocalyptic farting baby that, that uh-huh. almost in some ways would be worth uh, making a little side film. It actually occurred to me watching this too, and I've been thinking about this with a few films that I've watched now where it's like we've kind of entered the era where the default for somebody with a creative idea is probably more to make a a limited series out of it than a film. Mm -hmm. And this definitely seems like a film that would be suited for like an episodic narrative, like an episodic narrative where it's like the episodes are chapters of a whole, not like, you know, an old school episodic show like a serialized show i yeah, guess it, you would it say. could have been a six episode miniseries or absolutely something. yeah yeah and then mm-hmm. come back for another season where you know more crazy stuff happens or whatever but it, it's has richard kelly worked at all in that mode has he done any um television or particularly like his own kind of you know branded uh show like m night Shyamalan or no th- th- this is know? it really after um his third picture the box which is another yeah. of those films that mythologizes a given time and much like Darko and Southland Tales doesn't just explore an idea but embodies it you know like um it it kind of breathes the 70s in a way that um Darko breathes the 80s or Southland Mm. Hills breathes a more contemporary time um and then after that I think he kind of got put in Hollywood jail um 
And he's had a number of projects that have all stalled at the casting stage. Like, I think he was going to do a movie with Nick Cage and James Gandolfini, but then James Gandolfini passed away and it fell apart. And he's kind of had that kind of string of bad luck ever since. It's interesting that even though, you know, I think Donnie Darko was at least a fairly independent film or at least made on a sort of like outside the system limited budget. Was it like Fox Searchlight or something like that? Or it was actually Flower. It was Drew Barrymore's production company. Okay, so it was it was it wasn't a studio film. Right. Um, but he feels like he, and even that film feels like, you know, it, it's, it doesn't have like a sort of lo-fi indie feel. Like it, it feels mm-hmm. like he needs that like breathing room of the midsize or, or plus size uh, production. And there's just not that much of a place for it unless you kind of get your foot in the door almost before he did, you know, mm-hmm. like those earlier Gen X filmmakers, Wes Anderson, Sophie Coppola, it's like, they're kind of set like a Woody Allen or whoever for life where it's like time for your next part. I mean, I'm probably exaggerating. They probably feel like they have to, you know, scramble much more, but there's like a niche for them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, he didn't quite get in in time to find the niche and he needs that scope for Mm -hmm. his, his film. So he's, yeah, it's interesting. You say he's in Hollywood jail and we're living at a time where theoretically anybody could go out and just make something and, and put it out there themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. but he hasn't done that and it would be interesting actually this film makes an interesting contrast in a way with the other major film i'm discussing for this month's podcast because i'm doing i'm sort of going backwards and forwards uh from the 80s each month on patreon where i i uh, did the 90s and the um 70s for the previous month and for this this installment I'm doing, you know, I'm moving forward and backward to the 2000s and the 60s. And the 60s film that I'm talking about is Goddard's Weekend, mm-hmm. where he is like kind of the opposite in that sense, where it's almost like he wouldn't know what to do with a studio budget or production format if he got one, which he kind of did for Contempt. And mm-hmm. he made like a an avant-garde film within that that is just like he can't make anything he always says like when he made breathless he wanted to make uh scarface but he ended up making alice in wonderland you know (laughs) um and certainly like you know richard kelly in his own way makes alice in wonderland films but they have that like sheen and that kind Mm -hmm. of uh grandeur of production like it feels like what would he do without that kind of um working environment or or look to the film i don't know i mean i arguably even now with the technology you could still get some of that even on a low budget but for whatever reason do you know why he hasn't really sort of tried to break out and just do something um no i can't say as i understand he is a bit in that same boat of like david lynch and john waters maybe he could go shoot something for a few hundred thousand um but he doesn't want to he'd rather wait to make sure he's got the money that he needs it's interesting it's interesting that lynch did want to do that for a little while with the website and inland empire and then it just Mm -hmm. somehow was like not again you Mm -hmm. know even though he seemed to be proud of that work it was like well that was for that for that project that coalesced into that and now Mm -hmm. and then he just spent years waiting until renewed interest in twin peaks basically gave him a pass back without that i don't know you know Mm -hmm. how he would have gotten to work with uh on that scale again i mean we're only now seeing waters make a first 
his um, he's making a new film. It's been twenty years, you know. Twenty years, um, wow, that's wild. Burnett, I, I think. Burn, when I don't even remember the last Charles Burnett film. Yeah, um, well, he but he's somebody who did interestingly work in yeah, like almost anything like he could. Sheep. Well, and almost anything you could get his hands on, like he made a great documentary for like mm -hmm. public television or something where it's like a docudrama on uh, Nat Turner. Mm -hmm. I did like a video essay on it um, around the time that like the Nate Parker film was coming out. And uh, it, it, like he's and I've actually noticed this with uh, a few filmmakers who kind of emerged in like the what was it? The L.A. Rebellion, that era when like black filmmakers were really you know, starting to get their work made and seen in like the late seventies, early eighties, like a lot of those directors after making films like um, killer of sheep or eventually we're, we're off on a tangent here, but eventually yep, daughters of the dust for uh, Julie dash. It's like they made these very idiosyncratic personal um, films and then they would work in like whatever mode they could. So they ended up making like, tv movies for like disney and stuff like that mm -hmm. like julie dash did one on rosa parks burnett um, had one for like the oprah winfrey network yeah he did one that was actually pretty interesting on like a it was like based on a kid's book about like slavery or something where mm -hmm. um it was like a kid learning to read or something i can't remember the name of it but yeah they would they would just kind of like do this thing where it's like okay what do you got i'll do this you know mm -hmm. and they work in these very small modes because mm -hmm. that was what they were able to get. But it's interesting how it's like um, some directors, it's like, they can't, I, I feel like they they need that. Uh, Orson Welles is an interesting example because I feel like he's somebody who did need that scale and scope. Mm -hmm. But what, just out of sheer desperation and like sort of irrepressible need to create, he did end up making so many films on a shoestring and like assembled over years mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of fascinating he's almost like a combination of those two archetypes but anyways we're off on a tangent with that um did you have a particular uh aspect of southland tales that you wanted to discuss that we haven't kind of touched on yet oh yeah i mean i could probably go on all night but <laughs> what's at the top of your list <laughs> one one film that or one as aspect of the film i really do like is how I mean, to go back to how it, it reflects the modern age in ways that are maybe not necessary, necessarily completely accurate, but still really interesting, is this idea um, everybody in the film almost becomes slave to screens. You see screen within a, like a frame within a frame over and over again through the film, and everybody's mm. watching TV. He watches um, Will Sasso's character, watches TV, and on the TV, it's both Kiss Me Deadly and Kristen Al's show. The villain, Nana May, sits in front of this wide array of screens all day. She's at once, she at once directs the kind of state violence, um, but as she surveys these, you know, reprobates she has this fascist contempt for, she's as much a slave to the screen input as anyone, you know. Um, and yet. Kind of hypnotized. The, when they raid the neo-Marxists, they kill them all through screens, you know, mounted onto their guns. And and that that feels so now because we have watching a TV and you're looking at your phone, you're you're playing. OK, whatever. actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to intercede here for a second. What's uh -huh. missing in all this, though, when we it's talk just... about all these screens? Right, right. Like the social media aspect is not there. Not just the social media, smart like smartphones, nobody smartphones. in the film. Mm -hmm. This is two years maybe one year by the time the film came out 
before the iPhone. And it's like, nobody was anticipating it. Mm-hmm. I think of this a lot with like futuristic films from that era or like predictions or like, I was just thinking about, I, I just put out a podcast today on back to the future part two. And it's like, for all of the imagination about the, what the future could entail, it's like nobody anticipated that we'd be doing all this shit through our phones and like looking mm-hmm. at our phones. It's kind of amazing. You know, like you're, it's, it's like they're circling around the idea, but they can't quite get to it. Even when it's literally like, I mean, I'm sure the iPhone was like, already you know well underway in production or mm-hmm. whatever at this time but somehow somehow nobody quite got ahead of the ball there i don't know mm-hmm. it's fascinating <laughs> it just it just it, it, even that i mean it feels so in keeping with this idea that um science fiction might speak to the future it, it might predict it in a way that's aesthetically true but substantively off or it might be substantively true but aesthetically off and South and Tales is usually one or the other. You can't really say you write that like it, it misses a bit of what's so normal to our lives, like the smartphones and the, and social media, but it, it, it captured that idea in an interesting way that, that how we could be slave to um, watching weird things on a multitude of screens and what, what effect that that could have on our behavior. And if that could in fact be tied in with some way um, to, or if that would be bad, if such a thing were to arise in the midst of kind of a really bad kind of national security state apparatus in which we live, which of course, I mean, is kind of true, just like I say, in Southland Tales, it's explored in this in this fractured way, um, which, and I guess I just find it so fascinating how um, that's such an idea within the thing. If, if, if you can predict the future, you will do so in a weird and, and off-kilter way almost through art. Because there are just so many things that it's like it it gives us something to engage with now, but without being quite, you know, quite exact. Like uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, she plays Krista now, who, I mean, is kind of like a twisted prophetic reflection of like Mia Khalifa, somebody who took um, uh, a career in pornography and has turned it in to having a legit, you know, huge multifaceted platform, you know, that she works from. Um, including being, I mean, I'm, you know, Mia Khalifa probably has spoken about, you know, political issues in this in a similar way as Krista now. The film's timeline just kind of boggles my mind for a few reasons. First of all, it actually takes place before it came out, which surprised me. For some reason, I thought it was made in 2004 and came out in 2005. But then I was listening to the Q&A and he's like, we were shooting it in the summer of 2005. And the terrorist attack that basically serves as the branching off point for where the movie's narrative departs from our own mm-hmm. uh, reality. The The terrorist attack is on July 4th, 2005. So it's like, that. That's was that just a delay in production? He didn't want to change the dates around? Or um, like, why did that happen? Because that kind of surprises me. It, it almost would make more sense if the film set itself immediately after its release, even though, of course, within you know months or a year, it would be... the the, the timelines would have diverged but it would have been a fascinating moment to watch it in that in that before it uh unfolds i do do know that kelly has this idea that he wants to make films for the future he wants to make films that um people will look back later and get more out of so perhaps setting it slightly in the future was kind of a natural idea for him but I mean, sledding it slightly in the past, like the the obviously the film takes place slightly in the future, but 
mm. the, like prologue, like the premise of mm-hmm. how this timeline begins and it differs because up to up to about July 4th, 2005, it's uh, presumably everything in the movie other than, you know, these characters who don't exist in the real world, but everything in the movie is like occurring within our reality. Like Bush is president, mm-hmm. 9-11 happens, Patriot Act passes, we go into Iraq, then this nuclear attack happens and that's where the movie's reality departs from our own. But it's just interesting to me that he set that terrorist attack on Texas before the movie came out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause it well, came out oh, in 2006. I think I see what, it was, it was like, shooting after that. It's, it's like he's less, even though, I mean, Southland Hills is very much a piece of speculative fiction. It's like, it's being pitched more explicitly as the road not taken. As oh the, yeah. As that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I only on the second viewing, I'm sad to say, realize that the Republican presidential candidates names are uh, like echoing Robert Frost and T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. Because I remember yeah. thinking that's an odd choice for presidential names. I don't know, Elliot, uh, El- Elliot Frost, like. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, you know, obviously Frost. I think of with Twin Peaks all the time, not like Mark Frost. And I was like, oh wait, Robert Frost. Oh my God, and T. S. Eliot. And I was like, oh God, how did I miss that? <laughs> right, and and he invokes Robert Frost a lot Constantly, in the stump speech. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and Elliot too, but they were flipping mm-hmm. around. This is how the world ends, not with a whimper, but a bang. Right. Um, and it's interesting that just as it's ironic, right, the world ends with a bang, it also is kind of a good thing, right? Like we're ushered into this new, like it doesn't see the apocalypse as some um, event of sad destruction. It's an ushering into a new age, right? An age where the Kali Yuga. <laughs> yeah. It's an age where Stifler um, dethrones God and destroys capitalism. Isn't that like a conservative meme? The whole like destroy capitalism and dethrone God thing? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does sound like something that they would say at this point, you know. I swear I've actually seen it as like like some Republican candidate like posted it unironically. Like this is what the left wants to do. <laughs> and it was I mean, like... Yeah, I would not that would not surprise me in the least, I will say. I did think it was kind of funny in a cringy way when on for all of his like prescience and sort of uh you know the the scope of the film, when they're interviewing Richard Kelly in the behind the scenes documentary, he's like, Well, it says something like, I swear, it's like if this film has a message, it's get out and vote or something. I'm like, <laughs> really? <laughs> that's that's not that's not the message i'm getting from this movie nor would i really want to in that and that does feel very much of that time where you would have there there hadn't been the complete um disconnect between leftism and liberalism yet in a lot of people's minds that's kind of happened now i mean you you might see somebody who would be like, yeah, you got to get out and vote. And they might actually really kind of see themselves as somebody who thinks that, like, you know, God should be dethroned and capitalism destroyed. And that's why we have to vote for John Kerry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The only people who believe that the Democratic Party are these, like, radical revolutionaries are the entire right and then this sort of fringe of increasingly a fringe liberal leftist or something (laughs) (laughs) i guess that's where dark brandon is born and you know i mean it was born as irony but i guess that's where it (laughs) where it thrives now (laughs) 
something I thought you would find interesting um, about the film is how Kelly seems to suggest in Southland Tales that this is a track that we've kind of inevitably been on since the advent of the Atomic Age um, with his repeated use of um, Kiss Me Deadly scene mm, within yeah, the film. Yeah, good point, yeah. And it just, it makes me think, oh, he, well, you know, kind of like how David Lynch and Mark Frost put us on a bad track from the White Sands, New Mexico nuclear test, you know, and Twin Peaks, I'm like, oh, he'll notice that, that there's almost this little Twin Peaks similarity here. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that, like, in terms of those sort of real-world apocalyptic scenarios, um, certainly, I mean, nuclear war is, sadly, more relevant than ever right now, more so mm-hmm. even than when the film came out. Um, but God, you know, that's it's something fascinating, I guess, as a time capsule about this movie, the idea of like the U S at war with the world, but it's all these like small middle Eastern States that can't really defend themselves. And there's, I don't think they do they ever mention Russia or China once in the movie? Like there's no um, like great power conflict at all. Right. It, it it expands into Syria and North Korea yeah. um, w- without going directly into China or Russia. Yeah. Interesting. And it's just not, it's not like at play in this. It's a very mm-hmm. hegemonic, like, like unipolar sort of vision mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of the global dynamics, which is definitely how it felt at that time. I mean, Russia was just sort of like this weird, like almost like quasi sidekick of like mm-hmm. Putin and Bush being buddy buddy until they weren't. Right. Um and you know China yeah, interesting. That dog had yet to slip the chain. <laughs> yeah. But so anyways, nuclear war obviously, you know, has has risen and fallen in relevance awareness I should say. It's always pretty relevant. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this movie in retrospect, um there is very much an energy theme obviously getting off of oil and onto these alternate fuels, but it's all pitched in terms of like exhaustion of resources or um you know dependence on the these other you know these these countries that are enemies in some way it's not i don't think climate change features into the film almost at all i think there's like a mention of the ozone at some point mm-hmm. but that almost feels like something where even <clears throat> if the movie had been made a few years later that might have been more in the zeitgeist that that's Kelly ha, actually does address this in a in a foreword to the graphic novel, where he says, in in his opinion, climate change is the whimper, and so he wants to explore the bang. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. 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 That is. Yeah, because that is an interesting sort of um, like like. Uh, opposition or whatever i don't know one thing i do like about how it does explore that though is well one the idea that they would have like branded military equipment is very funny to me like the hustler tank and the johnsonville brats hummer um always makes me laugh um but i just like this idea that but it's it's again true of the baron and it's true of musk that this guy coming along and preaching um alternative fuel is just this carnival barker weirdo right um musk is presenting himself as some kind of great philanthropist and then goes online and talks about how um people like him should be able to coo whoever they want to obtain lithium resources for his you know fancy new alternative you know electric cars 
right? And uh, Baron von Westphalen is um, essentially committing acts of like racist violence against other countries pursuing energy programs like Japan. And his alternative fuel that he's so proud of is almost, it's literally snake oil, right? Like it's, um, it's just another yeah, resource being point. mined from a, a, a serpent that coils, a serpentine trench that coils the earth, you know? Yeah. Wow, that is a great, I, I, the snake oil, almost pun, I guess you could call it, never occurred to me. But yeah, they, when they show, um, I don't think they show it in the film, but in the graphic novel, when they right. show the, like, the shape of the trench that they're pulling this weird liquid, what's it called in the film? Um, Fluid karma. Fluid karma, that they're pulling the fluid karma from. It looks like a snake wrapped around the, the core of the earth. So that is mm -hmm. funny. Um, all right. Well, again, we could probably talk about this film for hours, but <laughs> I guess we'll we'll start to wrap it up here. Um, what would you want your kind of final words on all of this? The politics, the zeitgeist, um, the film itself. What, what would you want to make your kind of uh, I, I final just, stand I, upon? Really, I mean, I see Southland Tales as this wonderful, um, fun and absurd, but also kind of um, heavy, warped commentary on America. Um, you know, and to me, it's almost entertaining whether it's particularly accurate or not. There's just this kind of um, joie de vivre to its depiction of the apocalypse that makes it almost, to me, fun to follow, even if you don't try to make sense of it. Maybe it's even better. Maybe that's the joke, ultimately, that. Um, um, there's so many double crosses and schemes that it's better to just um, roll with it than try to think about it and feel it as an expression of the absurdity of this kind of late capitalist age. Um, although, I mean, as you know, we've demonstrated, there's you know, you could get into it, but to me, it's almost just fun to watch, even if I don't think too hard about it. Because, um, I mean, I just think that. Um, the, the way that the, preci the precision to Kelly's filmmaking, I mean, Darko is precise, but this is um, an extremely detailed film cinematically in terms of how he pans and cuts and frames. And there's just so much fun to be had with it, with the, you know, it'll cut to two cars porking or um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, who I think turns in the performance of her career. I think she's so funny in this movie that um, even if you find it overwhelming, that can be okay, might be my. Um, ultimate feeling about the film yeah it's it's fascinating how even though it feels in some ways like a messy chaotic film the pieces are all and i think they mentioned this in like the making of in fact john lovitz is the one who says it they're interviewing him and in it's like cop costume and he's like uh i don't understand this film like i i really don't understand what's going on in it but i understand all of my individual scenes and like what my mm -hmm. motive is mm -hmm. and why i'm there and like richard kelly is very good at giving his actors that sense but like actor after actor is like i i, I have no idea what this is or what i'm in mm -hmm. or what this is but i know what i'm doing in this moment so that is kind of an interesting combination there uh, of like that precision and of execution of the moment. And then, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, uh, freewheeling, uh, you know, structure of the overall, like how these pieces sort of fit together, mm -hmm. these individual moments. I think it came out the same year as Inland Empire. So there was really, um, it was a good year for that kind of film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess that's... Uh, 
that's uh, that would be an interesting double feature. <laughs> <laughs> Southland Tales really reminded me of Neon Genesis Evangelion. I almost felt like this is a film that probably would be more make more sense as an anime than like a live action film. You know, yeah, like it, that that idea of the earth is this almost eldritch location in a way that aspect and just the the style of storytelling which mm-hmm. is throwing all this stuff at you and there's like conspiracies within conspiracies and mm-hmm. it just the outfits it, are very anime yeah like it just was very very evangelian to me we got really into the weeds with this <laughs> it's fun and that's it for the discussion with andrew but now we have an excerpt from another conversation i had with vera drew And here is where I noticed a connection with her film in Southland Tales, which then opened up to a broader discussion of that film and Richard Kelly. One other question, very random, but um, off the Twin Peaks path. Are you into like uh, Richard Kelly and Southland Tales at all out of curiosity? Uh, 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 Completely. Okay, because uh, yeah. this film, remi- I had just rewatched <laughs> Southland Tales for the first time in six or seven. I actually got an episode coming out on it uh, for Patreon where I talked to uh, Andrew Cook, who I've had on the podcast before, and he's a big Richard Kelly fan. And I, I didn't oh, cool. like, I wasn't nuts about it the first time I saw it. It was like, I love the idea, but um, revisiting it and I actually just had the experience, a similar experience, like an hour or two before we recorded this. Of, I've been watching all these 2000s films. I'm like revisiting that era, which was very like, formative and you know uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use this hyperbolically because it wasn't actually traumatic but it was like kind of like a like that that to, to grow up in and i feel like we're somewhat i don't know how much younger i feel like probably a little younger than me but you know growing up being in my 20s in like the 2000s was mm-hmm. like that was just like a weird time to like come of age or whatever so like i've been revisiting all these films and i rewatched history of violence like an hour or two ago or I guess, you know, three hours, whenever, before we started recording. And uh, I did not like that film when I saw it in theaters at mm. the time. And this was the first time I'd watched it since. And it was sort of like what you're saying about like party teens. Like now that I knew what to expect, I was like, okay, this is like a well done movie. Like I, it's an odd, you know, I I don't know that it's whatever, but it's uh, it, you know, it, it, I, I can accept it on its own terms now. And I felt a little that way with Southland Tales. Cause it was like, Okay, I, I know yeah. what it is now. I can watch it. But like this, so anyways, like, yeah, back back to People's Joker. It reminded me so much like that, like sort of, especially like the newscasters coming in and all the things popping off, like random, like asides and tangents, like in a very good way, reminded me of of Southland Tales. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I, I, I would have never admitted this uh, prior <laughs> to making the movie. Just because like, uh, yeah, it's like, a, a very well hated movie still. <laughs> um, I mean, even but, when uh, I didn't like it that much, I was like, I respected it because I'm like, somebody had to make a movie like this. Like, this movie needed to exist, it oh, needed totally. to be out there in the universe. <laughs> and that was definitely my experience too, watching it the first time. Like, I think I, when I watched it the first time, it was honestly, probably, it might have even been like the same week I saw Inland Empire. <laughs> um, yeah, they came out like, like really close together. We talk about that and that that podcast we did where like, yeah, these were like almost like twin films in a weird way. I I was following both. Like I remember following both like just like, because I had also, I was, it was like my first year in film school and like, I was like obsessed with Donnie Darko. Uh, Not obsessed with Donnie Darko. I just, I really did like Donnie Darko a lot. Um, And uh, it like, 
I don't know. Like seeing it that first time, I think my reaction was like, okay, well, this is like, I guess like pop art or something. <laughs> like why, like why is Sean William Scott in it? Like why is like, like I think the casting really broke my brain that first yes. viewing. Oh, it's such a like 99 to 2001, <laughs> like not even the era it was made. It's like everything that was big at the turn of the millennium, like American Pie, like the weird pop music thing with like Mandy Moore, like Buffy the Vampire, like everything from that exact. But they're all miscast. They're all <laughs> they're all cast in like it's like not it's not even like cast against type. It's just like John Lovitz is like a weird racist cop. <laughs> like so good. It's uh yeah. So like it, I think it was that same thing of just like I saw it. And I was like I don't understand this, <laughs> but I'm going to rewatch this about once a year. And I yeah. now I like. It's it's definitely one of my favorite movies now. Like I love the con cut of it. I also love that the I con don't cut know if I've ever is... seen the con cut because I feel like when I rewatched it this time, it was the same cut that I'd seen before, and I've only it's, seen it twice. So it's worth checking out because, yeah. like, I mean, it it really does. Uh, it it's a different movie. It feels like a completely different movie. <laughs> it's like it's there's parts of it that make more sense. There's parts of it that make even less sense. Um. You know, I think he's even said that he's not happy with the con cut. So, like, mm. there might be a couple years from now where we get the definitive Southland Tales. But, yeah, I highly recommend that movie to anybody that loves David Lynch. And, like, it's because to me it's like. Or People's Joker. I mean, like, this well, is <laughs> like, like the fact that, that you're, like, creating this alternate society that is clearly also kind of parallel to our own, you know. Well, that, really, that like, felt very Southland Tales, too. I think like Southland Tales was so ahead of its time at like noticing the intersection between um, comedy, uh, leftist politics, the military, mm. police, and um, like sex and fascism. Like, I feel like there's like, a, there's this like really, it's just really ahead of the curve and like kind of, I think anticipating a lot of the things from like the sort of Trump and post Trump era, like, yes, that, yeah. um, really like, I don't know. It just like, it really, it, it just made sense in, in the people's Joker for me. Like, I also really love Paul Verhoeven, like, Oh yeah. So much. Like, like Paul I just Verhoeven. total recall too. Oh yeah. It's <laughs> like, he's like, Un like Paul Verhoeven is actually underrated as far as I'm concerned, just because of like how dense his fucking movies are. Like, like I love like how every single one of his movies, even Benedetta, which is like, you know, takes place before news channels exist. It's like he creates like this universe that feels like you feel you feel the world just outside the frame and you feel that there's like a media landscape and that there's like actual people and like politics to this world. And it's just, I don't know, like it, it's, um, so I think that's where a lot of that came from in the people's Joker. It was just like Verhoeven and, and Richard Kelly. And I, I, I love Richard Kelly. He, he, I, I, he followed me on Twitter because oh, I, nice. you know, <laughs> I, I was an early Southland tales, uh, <laughs> fan and uh it really made my day because it's he's i think he's he's great i think he's one of the best we have and i actually do think his best works ahead of him and he has so i didn't realize this until i was sort of revisiting his films or i saw the box actually for the first time for for this sort of 2000s uh 
soup <laughs> or whatever I'm recording. <laughs> but um, I didn't realize he hadn't directed a film since then. So it's been like 13 years or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, now, cause you know, I'm, I'm, my film career is just starting, but it, it really, it's, you really, you get, people understand you only by your last movie and like the last movies you made. And like, I think just because like Southland Tales was this like critically panned thing that not a lot of people saw. And then the box just, I think just kind of went and gone. Like, I think it's probably very hard for him to make the movies he wants to make. Like, I'm sure he could get directing gigs and stuff, but I think he's thankfully <laughs> a director with integrity and is probably like waiting for the right project to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I'm dying to see another movie from him. I, I like, he's got a ton of unproduced scripts out there that are really good too. Like if, if you're ever looking to kill some time, like check out his, uh, his spec script. That's an adaptation of <laughs> Lewis Satcher's holes. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Holes. Or yeah, the they made holes one with like Shia LaBeouf or whatever, right? Yeah, like but Richard 2000s. Kelly has a version. <laughs> Richard Kelly wrote an adaptation of Holes that is like, it's barely an adaptation of Holes. <laughs> it is, there's like end of world imagery. There's like, it's 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 basically like Southland Tales. Um, Interesting. Yeah, he's a phenomenal. I think he's like a phenomenal filmmaker and a great writer. I think like he's just, yeah. So, it's got to line up. And here's some feedback I received from Marcus, the host, uh, one of the hosts of Have a Nice Apocalypse, uh, talking about Richard Kelly, Southland Tales, hinting at this hopefully upcoming episode that we'll record. Marcus wrote me and said, Hi, Joel. My name's Marcus. I'm only a recent subscriber. I came initially because I'm a big fan of Vera Drew. I know I already said it on YouTube, but damn, that was a good interview. But I love the channel and the shows, and I plan on sticking around. I noticed your post about Southland Tales and got very excited. I co-host a podcast about Southland Tales and Richard Kelly's career. It's called Have a Nice Apocalypse. We actually had Vera on as well, just before Tiff. Here's a link to her episode. And of course, I'll link that in the show notes as well. We broke the film down into 12 individual sections, did an episode on each. We plan on coming back and doing some more general conversations with people we want to talk to, and you're absolutely on the list now. And then he came back and said, Hey Joel, after listening to the episode more, I came up with an episode idea that I think would be great for you. Personally, I see a lot of connections to Lynch in Kelly's work, and I think it would be fun to play to your expertise and do a general episode about connections between Lynch and Twin Peaks to Kelly and his films. Let me know what you think of the idea. It likely wouldn't happen for a couple months because we move on a much more lax schedule, but I'm excited about it. And I said, it's definitely intriguing, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. My own initial instinct would probably be to emphasize some of the different directions they go in from some similar aspects, how some of their similarities are on the surface, surreal, uncanny flourishes like Frank the Bunny and Donnie Darko, or the box delivery guy in Southland Tale in The Box, uh, blanking on his name at the moment, ultimately lead in different directions, with Kelly more fascinated by history and a kind of quasi-hard sci-fi with complicated but explicable rules. In a weird way, I almost see him as a fusion of Lynchian and Frostian impulses in the same person, which I can kind of relate to since both aspects of the Peaks creators appeal to me in different ways. Hopefully that perspective works for what you have in mind, along with whatever else I think of in the interim or on the spot. 
If not so much, and you'd rather have me offer something else, I'd also be keen to talk about Kelly's use of history and zeitgeists in his own work, which also fascinates me. Of course, if my view of Lynch and Kelly does work for an episode, we can probably include a history discussion too, given the Frost connection. Looking forward to it. Also, I was going to say Southland Tales might be Kelly's least Lynchian film, but it occurred to me that it's actually got quite a bit of Dune in it, both visually and thematically, and specifically the Lynch Dune more than the Villeneuve Dune. Yeah, I can definitely see a lot to dig into with this idea. And as Andrew or maybe Vera pointed out, it syncs up nicely with Inland Empire, which came out around the same time. Marcus responded, Lord knows my co-host and I could do with a history lesson, lol. I'm less familiar with Frost as a person and his work outside of Peaks, but I am absolutely happy to hear about these comparisons that you see. Fascinated to hear your Dune theory, because as you mentioned, I can start to see it. I'm very excited for this. Thanks again, Joel. I'll be back in to contact you when we get closer to whenever we get to record this. And I responded, also, re our discussion of Frost, not to pile more on your plate, but a couple of years ago, I published this video on Frost's work, which you might find interesting, and shared that with him. And I'll link that below, too, of course. And then I also recorded some capsules of other Richard Kelly works, uh, or works related to Southland Tales. The first is a little cartoon I discuss that's on the disc that relates to the Southland Tales universe. And then I have a capsule here of uh, The Box, Richard Kelly's last film, and Donnie Darko, his debut. So I'm going to share those here. These were also recorded for Patreon episodes involving uh, 2000 cinema, uh, mostly, I think, for this particular episode that uh, originally had Southland Tales. So I thought I would share them here as well. I did also watch This Is The Way The World Ends, which was a cartoon, a piece of animation on the disc, which was about these kind of squiggly-legged, ghost-like-looking creatures kind of jellyfish or octopuses or something, floating around underwater, and uh, older one explains to a younger one the fall of humanity and the end of civilization and how they've carried on since then. I think they're supposed to be aliens that have come to the Earth and established a new civilization there, uh, or possibly some evolution of invertebrates. But I, I think it's less time has passed than that in this cartoon. And it's specifically drawn from the end of Southland Tales. So there is some sort of life that continues after the Armageddon that uh, Sean William Scott opens up. And you get to see a little bit of it in this film, which is interesting. The humans, and the animals are all mutated from the experience. And, you know, he's explaining the values that we, the alien civilization, have and how these humans were inventive at times but didn't have that. So this is interesting both in content and form, the fact that it's this very scrawly, kind of childlike animation and uh, very different from the comic as well, which, you know, there's the whole comic book that goes with this film. So interesting to see how it was a multimedia production. It, it Just like it represents multimedia production, Southland Tales, it also embodies it at times. I also watched uh, after this as the first of my kind of official 2000s viewings, The Box, which was Richard Kelly's follow-up to this film and apparently his last film, which is surprising. Uh, I'd been curious to see this film for years. I remember even before this came out, there was notice that Richard Kelly was going to be making a new film. I think it was before Southland Tales even. And I was so fascinated by it. I was like, oh, the director of Donnie Darko's coming out with a movie where somebody opens up a time capsule. And as they look through the drawings and the sketches and stuff, they find predictions of all the events that have happened since that time capsule was buried. Kennedy's assassination, you know, 9-11, maybe end of the Cold War and all of this stuff, all of the Berlin Wall, somebody 
drew these some kid drew these pictures envisioning all of it ahead of time and then there's one drawing which is of another event that hasn't happened yet and so that gives the movie its impetus and i couldn't wait to see that and it was never made and i thought the box was going to be that i was kind of surprised it wasn't instead it was a riff on an idea which i think was initially presented in a short story that i've read somewhere there's also an adaptation of it uh i watched years ago where they actually like shoot a uh uh, uh, just an ad- direct adaptation of that short story. And it's the idea that you get a box, somebody delivers it to you. They say, if you press this button, somebody somewhere in the world that you don't know is going to die and you'll get a million bucks or you'll get infinite power or whatever, you know, whatever the case is, it's that trade off between uh, a blind disrupt destruction that you're not going to see the consequence of and a direct reward that you will. And of course that's such a great metaphor for so many things. I think much of the American experience, the kind of benefit that we get here uh, in the United States, even the people who are struggling tend to have a quality of life that's lacking in the places that the U.S. most directly exploits. So there's obviously that. There's just a general human kind of uh, uh, story to tell using that allegory as well. And in this film, it's set in the 70s. Uh, very consciously, you know, there's Jimmy Carter on the radio, and it's this cold, kind of frigid, um, small, suburban kind of lifestyle that reminded me of the ice storm. I think the characters are certainly struggling a little more. One of them works in some sort of space tech, and the other one is a school teacher at, I think, a private school. But, you know, they're not um, super wealthy. They're struggling a little bit. So this this offer of a million dollars they get from um what's his name frank the guy who played nixon and nixon frost frank langella part of his face is burned off from as it turns out a lightning strike and uh he is presenting them with this box here's the button press this button somebody somewhere will die you won't know who etc now the film takes this premise and it runs with it in interesting directions which first of all that premise almost becomes like it's a way in but the story is much more about uh, you know, I have to give away a little bit, I guess, by talking about it in this way. It's not about the dilemma of whether or not you push the button. It's more about living with the consequences after you have made a, a morally wrong decision and you can't go back and change it. And now you have to be moral in the wake of that while dealing with the consequences and the downfall, uh, perhaps attendant with that. So, there's a whole sci-fi story going on about what this project really is, who's getting the box, how the chain of, of reaction works, and all of that. Uh, I enjoyed watching it. So I thought Cameron Diaz in particular was really good. Um, she is a poignant character in this, somebody who's injured and has a compassionate side as well as, obviously, you know, a more selfish one to even consider pressing the button. James Marsden is a lead in it as well and in many ways has to carry much of the film uh, and he's fine, but it was really more Cameron Diaz who left an impression. I don't think I've seen her play someone this sort of vulnerable before in a really heartfelt way. It's one of the most interesting performances in a Richard Kelly film. And uh, yeah, I was glad I watched this. I, I thought it was really interesting. I'd love to hear feedback on it. Um, Andrew, send, in, send something else my way, because uh, I, I do think that... Uh, there's a lot to dig into here. I'm just going to brush over it in capsule form because I'm talking about a bunch of films I watched. And I've already spent an hour talking about Southland Tales, but uh, I, I did like I did like this in some ways. I think it was probably the most uh, 
it held together the most, the best of any Richard Kelly film, for better or worse. Sometimes it's fun when the when the films don't quite hold together. So Donnie Darko, I rewatched. Uh, this is still, I think, my favorite uh, Richard Kelly film. I think Southland Tales is probably the most interesting overall. The box is probably the most coherent. But Donnie Darko has the most um, emotional weight and momentum behind it. I think this is the film that broke him through because it captures a kind of melancholy and romanticism of adolescence that I think many films go for, but not that many achieve. There's just a sense. I, I felt this at the time, too, when I watched it for the first time, being you know not that much older than the character. Uh, I remember seeing it and feeling there was something great here, but it didn't quite have the final form of greatness. Uh, and I did see the director's cut later, although I think if memory serves, I still kind of prefer the original. The, the The director's cut gets a little wonkier with the time travel and explaining what's going on. Obviously, the conceit of this movie is that an airplane engine crashed out of the sky with no airplane in the area, so they, they don't know how it got there, crashed into this teenager's bedroom while he was out and about. And now he's sort of figuring out what's going on, and he's seeing visions of a guy in a rabbit suit and having a romance with this girl in the neighborhood. And all of this is counting down towards something we don't quite understand what yet uh, that's going to happen. It takes place in 1988 during the Bush uh, Dukakis election. And it's, it's a portrait of like late 80s America as well, which Richard Kelly is younger than this character would have been at the time. But, you know, not like he would have remembered. He would have been about the sister's age, or maybe a little older, I think 12 or 13 at this time when this film is, is depicting. And that's another thing I think it captures is like that, the, the, the sort of the, the sweetness almost of a zeitgeist that uh, you can only really perceive when you're kind of new to the world in some way, when you're coming of age and you're experiencing history for the first time. And something about that moment feels like a little dream dreamlike in a way so the film just captures all these ineffable things which i love about it um but it organizes it into a kind of a sprawling container a bit of a messy story with all of these tangents about uh, different people the in the neighborhood you know this this self-help guru who turns out to be uh have a dark side and uh, all this other stuff that that he wants to tackle richard kelly there's also an interesting aspect of it where the character is criticizing everybody around him and sort of, you know, there, there's a sense at times where it's like, yes, Donnie Darko is the truth teller against the status quo. But many of the things he says are just either untrue or not particularly convincing. And uh, I think his girlfriend calls him out on it at one point where it's like he's being set up as this sort of prophet, but he's just kind of a confused kid often. <laughs> Um, you know, I think particularly his takedown of the self-help guru, who is a scumbag, but the way he goes after him is sort of hackneyed itself. Like he's like, well, you know, maybe this kid should just lose some weight or this or that. Like he doesn't, he clearly doesn't really have the solutions either. Um, he's correct in seeing the bullshit of others, but he, he hasn't found his own antidote to that bullshit. And the film is also interesting because you know, if you're listening to this, you probably know how it wraps up. I guess skip ahead a couple minutes to the next time code if you, if you don't want to know how the film ends. But the film ends with him rewinding time, going through a wormhole, which uh, results in him being in the bedroom when that airplane engine hits. And the airplane engine is from an airplane that his mother and his sister were on. And so somehow it's like he's going to prevent that crash. Of course, then how does the engine still end up? Or no, I guess he wouldn't prevent the crash. He would just prevent them from being on it because they're not going to go to the sister's show 
that they would go to um, as a chain result of, you know, him not dying in that accident and all that. And so the film, interestingly, and the, the cover of Mad World taps into this, it, it kind of creates this allegory around suicide and the idea that people would be better off without you. And I don't know if that thought would occur to me uh, on its own. I, I didn't really think of the film that way before. But I read a comment on Netflix, which was extremely hostile toward the movie and basically treated that as if that was the whole movie, that it was like a justification of suicide or something, which I was kind of fascinated by. I'll, I'll link to the Netflix page. I don't know if you can link directly to reviews, but uh, this person was like furious that the that, that Donnie Darko character was basically rationalizing a way to, to leave the world. And there's, you know, whether or not you think that's a good idea, I think probably can hopefully agree that you know you, you you don't that that's not a great value to preach if you're just preaching it in a void but as like capturing a certain mindset a certain aesthetic a certain sensibility i think the film does that marvelously to the point where we have you know our protagonist gone in the final sequence he's no longer there to guide us and we see everybody crying as he's gone and there's uh, and his girlfriend pulling up on the bike like oh that's so sad but she doesn't even know who he is cuz they never meet because she's new to town and He's now just died. And there's something almost like it's like a Catholic martyr thing. I think a quality to this that I find fascinating, this sort of taking yourself, like sacrificing yourself and then being able to sort of see or imagine other people's reactions to that. And, uh, you know, the idea of going to your own funeral and seeing everyone cry that you're, that you're gone is sort of, there's sort of like a narcissistic streak to that as well as like a noble one, maybe, um, but I like how the film taps into all of that. And uh, the rabbit, the the Frank the rabbit is really a great conceit. You know, people have criticized this film for trying to be Lynchian and you can never try to be Lynchian. You're always going to fail. Fair enough. But I do think in its own right, that conceit, this this rabbit with a metallic frozen face that keeps appearing and talking to him and then you find out who it is and what it is uh, really works well in this film. And here's some more feedback from Andrew I received after my coverage of those other Richard Kelly films following up on his appearance uh, to discuss Southland Tales. Andrew also commented on The Box, the Richard Kelly film, and also some other films as we go through here. I think as he was listening, he sent these messages. If I recall correctly, that Richard Kelly movie about the time capsule eventually became Knowing from Alex Proyas. So he's talking about um, this thing I mentioned where Richard Kelly was supposedly behind a project where they open up a time capsule and it's got predictions of things that happened after the time capsule was buried. So I got to see that film now. I didn't know they actually did make it. Andrew continues, listening through, would be interested in doing something on the box, but the how and when would be up to you. Richard Kelly has said that Donnie Darko is in part about what it's like to be a naive, know-it-all teenager. And that's it for this episode. And as I said, we're going to end here, but look for some teasers for the Patreon content coming up on this feed. If you want to just jump ahead of that, uh, join patreon.com slash lost in the movies and get access to that entire archive. Thank you for listening to this. I don't know exactly what the future holds in terms of podcasts, other than I do have a Twin Peaks cinema episode coming up in a couple weeks on that feed. So definitely look for that and should have Lost in Twin Peaks and some more Twin Peaks conversations as well. But in terms of the more distant future, not exactly sure, not sure exactly what's going to be unfolding on Patreon, but I hope you've enjoyed these episodes at this point. We've got... Uh, I think into the 50s 
uh, in terms of episodes on this feed. It went back to 2020, so three years worth of content and a lot to listen back to if you haven't heard it yet. So, all right, that's the conclusion to this uh, project. And uh, thank you once again. <laughs>